This evening in our study of Isaiah, we are in chapter 25, which is God's victory over his enemies. Last time I mentioned that when you get to chapter 24 to 27, we are in kind of a, a, a climax, if you will, of the oracles to the nations that were in chapter 13 to 23. So chapter 13 to 23, you had individual messages of judgment to different nations, Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, etc. But then when you get to chapter 24, uh, you, you come into a, a passage that is very uh, apocalyptic in the sense that it, it grows to a, a bigger perspective of things, a bigger perspective of time because it looks to the far distant future and it's a bigger perspective even geographically because it looks to the whole world, not just individual nations. And so one of the things that you come across in chapter 24 is it makes reference to a city, but it never really tells us what that city is. It never defines it. And I think uh, uh, E.J. Young in his commentary on Isaiah made a good observation, and that is that basically what Isaiah is doing in chapter 24 with this reference to a generic city is he is kind of rolling up everything that he has said to the individual nations in chapter 13 to 23, and then kind of bottling that up and applying it to this generic city. But this generic city stands for any city. It stands for any place on earth because God's judgment is going to come on the whole world in the end. And, uh, and so you have, uh, even at the end of chapter 24, some very big language involving even the, the sun and the moon, which are, you know, uh, portents of, of universal judgment that we even see in other prophets and even in the New Testament. And so it seems like chapter 24 through 27 is broadening our vision of, of God's dealings with people and, and how he is going to bring both salvation and judgment and this is a theme that we've come across in Isaiah too, where you have this two-sided coin in the way that God deals with people. You have salvation for the people that he is demonstrating mercy and grace to. But then the other side of that is he is dealing judgment to those who are wicked, to those who are engaged in false worship and idolatry. And we see those, those dual themes run side by side in many passages in Isaiah. Uh, chapter 24 was more about judgment, judgment of the world. Chapter 25 is more the other side of the coin. It's more um, God's deliverance of his people and the victory that they have over their enemies. And then the praise that they give back to God for the victory that he has given them. And so in chapter 25, in the first five verses, of this chapter, we see uh, praise to God. And as you read these first five verses, it, it sounds very psalm-like because of the call to praise and the response of praise to God. In the first three verses, we see God demonstrating his faithfulness to his people. Verse one, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. And I think this is in response to chapter 24. 
So in God's bringing justice to the world, in God judging the wicked, his righteous remnant who have been saved by his grace, they are responding in praise to God and his faithfulness. And probably the idea here of God's faithfulness is probably connected to his promises, to his covenants with his people, so that you can go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham and how God would bless Abraham's descendants, how he would um, bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants, but curse those who curse Abraham and his descendants. And so the judgment on the nations that we've read about, the judgment on Babylon and Assyria and and these other enemies of Israel, that is a reflection of God's uh, faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham to curse those who curse Israel. And so they're praising God for his faithfulness. And I think it's this is a, a, something that recurs a lot of times in Isaiah, and especially as we move into the second half of Isaiah, I think you see a great emphasis on the long uh, view of the sovereign plan of God. And here you see it at the end of verse 1, things planned long ago. And Isaiah is an incredible testimony of, of God's knowledge and wisdom and his sovereignty over the world. Some people, when they think about God's foreknowledge or they think about God's infinite knowledge of all things, they they view it, I think, in a wrong perspective. Because when they think about God's knowledge, especially knowledge of the future, I think the way that they think of it is God sees what's going to happen. And therefore, he knows what's going to happen. But the problem with that view of God's foreknowledge is that it assumes that God can learn something. It assumes that there's something that God can see or find out that he didn't know before. And the thing about God's omniscience, his all knowledge, is that he's always been that way. So he has been all-knowing, but for all eternity. So there has never been a time at which God learned something. Let, let that sink in for a moment. Let it just blow your mind for a second. There has never been a moment in which God said, ah, that's what's going to happen. Or that's how that works. God's never had an aha moment of discovery. Because for all eternity, this has been his plan. So the way that God's knowledge works and the way that his knowledge of the future works is not just that he sees what's going to happen, but that it's the unfolding of his plan. That's why he knows what's going to happen, because he has planned it from long ago. So God's foreknowledge, his infinite knowledge, is tied up with his sovereignty. And this is how he knows all. But the psalm, the, the uh, prophet Isaiah here is speaking for himself, but also, I think, in representing the nation and those who are the remnant of God's chosen, and he is praising God for God's faithfulness and the things that he has done. In verse 2, he says, You have made the city a heap of rubble. Here again, what city? I think it's that generic city of chapter 24 that is kind of representative of any wicked city. It could be Babylon. It could be Rome. It could be Moscow in today, Baghdad, uh, 
Pyongyang, North Korea, you know, any wicked city that is opposed to God and opposed to God's people, God's going to bring judgment in his time, in his way. And Isaiah is praising God for that. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. And I think this is pointing to the fact that, that the, the vision of the prophets at the end of time is that not only will God uh, display judgment on the nations, but that there will also be a turning of peoples to God in worship. We saw this in uh, some of the earlier oracles to the nations where we saw Egypt and Babylon worshiping God together. And so it's pointing to this future time in which Gentile nations would turn to God and worship him. And I think we're seeing that unfold in our current lifetimes in in the new testament era we're seeing this turn of the nations to god and to christ through the proclamation of the gospel but the vision of the prophets is of a jerusalem that is the center of worship not just for the jews but for the whole world that all of the nations have come and that's the vision we see in revelation isn't it of all the peoples every tribe language tongue and people gathered around the throne in revelation 5 praising God. And so that's what he's referring to here. Even, even these pagan violent nations, they will turn and they will revere you. So we see a praise of God's faithfulness. And then in verses four and five, Isaiah continues to praise God because of the way that he has protected his people. He says, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. And like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. I think Isaiah is, is looking at the way that, that Israel has been the target of a lot of violent acts from Babylon, from Egypt, from Assyria. And and Isaiah is saying, God, you have watched over us. You have protected us. And you have been a shade from the heat of the violence of these people. And even looking forward to the end of time, I think Isaiah is, is viewing God's ultimate protection over his people and that that he is their ultimate source of a fortress, of a rock, of a place of solace and security from the onslaught of the world around us. Even in Revelation, which is in Revelation, one of the main themes is the persecution of God's people and how God's people cry out in the midst of that persecution. But one of the messages of Revelation is God is faithful to his people. And, and even though they go through persecution, he is their ultimate deliverance. He is their ultimate salvation. And even if they may face difficulties and defeat in this world, ultimately they will be victorious because God is their shade. He is their protection. 
So Isaiah praising God for his faithfulness in verses one through three, and then for his protection in verses four and five. And then the rest of the chapter is a description of God's restoration of his people and the blessings that will come to his people. And verses six and seven describe a scene in which God fellowships with his people. It's a scene of a feast, of a banquet, of, of God dwelling in fellowship and harmony with his people. Verse six says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. What mountain? Probably from Isaiah's perspective, with its focus on Zion, probably the mountain of Zion, Mount Jerusalem. And Jerusalem then in Isaiah's vision becomes the center of worship. It becomes the center of the, the peoples being regathered, not only from the Jews, but even from the nations. And there God coming among those who worship him from all over the world and God as the center of focus, they fellowship and they enjoy uh, they enjoy peace. They enjoy prosperity. They enjoy uh, the benefits of eternal life, which is described in, in very real terms that we can understand of good meat, of good drink, of good fellowship around the table. Those are just metaphors, aren't they? For so, for so much even more that will come to God's people uh, through his blessings. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Probably the idea here of a shroud and a sheet is that of death. And that like a shroud is placed over a dead body or a sheet is placed over a dead body, God is going to conquer this enemy of death. And we know that this is true because of further revelation in the New Testament that Jesus Christ in, in dying on the cross and then rising from the dead, that the last enemy that he will defeat is death. And those who are in Christ, those who are God's people, death does not have an ultimate hold on them, does it? They will be freed from death. They will be resurrected to life to live forevermore. So God... Uh, establishing fellowship with his people and then comforting his people. Verses eight and nine. He will swallow up death forever, confirms our, our view of the shroud of the sheet in verse seven. So he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will, will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken I think John in Revelation picks up on this very language in Revelation when he says, and he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's language from Isaiah. And so Isaiah and John are on the same page here in looking at the blessings that God will bring to his people in this time of restoration. For us, I think we can say this is the kingdom of God. This is the new heavens, the new earth. This is the final consummation of all things when Christ returns and he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes, all the disgrace, all the shame gone in that day. They will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him 
and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You know what? That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel. Not that you work to gain salvation, not that you can achieve salvation on your own, but how do you receive salvation? You trust God. You trust God. And, and with the revelation clearly of Christ in the New Testament, you trust in his son, Jesus Christ. This is how we receive salvation. And we rejoice in that salvation. So salvation is a gift of God. And all you do is trust. You, you put your faith in the Lord. And he delivers. And then verses 10 through 12. Again, dual themes in Isaiah when there's salvation on one side of the coin, what's on the other? Judgment. So that when God's people are delivered, well, they're delivered from their enemies. And they're delivered from those who are opposed to God. And so the last few verses, even in describing the salvation that God gives to his people, the flip side of that is the judgment that God brings on his enemies. So the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain But Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in the manure. We saw Moab referenced in the individual oracles to the nations earlier. Here, Moab is referenced again. Uh, We have uh, verse 11. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. That's a disgusting image, isn't it? Because what's the it? Back to verse 10. They'll be trampled down in the manure. Verse 11 says they'll swim in it. That's not a very pleasant image, but it's an image of ultimate defeat. It's an image of ultimate humiliation and and God bringing justice to the enemies of his people. God will bring down their pride despite the, the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. So Moab is specifically pointed out here at the end of chapter 25. But again, I think you can even draw the application further to any of God's enemies at the end of time that God will judge. And at the end of time, when God judges, and he judges rightly, doesn't he? He judges justly, righteously, and all of God's judgments are true. And so when he judges the nations at the end of time, they will receive the reward for what they have done. They will receive what is due them. And ultimately, it will be destruction, it will be condemnation, and it will be shame and humiliation. And at that same time, God's people will be vindicated. This is a theme that you see often in the New Testament, especially because of the context of the first century world in which the Christians lived that a lot of the early Christians in the first century world, they were persecuted. They were persecuted by unbelievers. They were persecuted by Jews. They were persecuted by Romans. Uh, persecution all over. And, and we, read, we read about this in First Peter when Peter talks about the suffering that the Christians are enduring. And he says, even when they malign you and slander you and say all kinds of evil things about you that are untrue, one of the things he comforts them with is the vindication that they will receive at the end of days. That 
your enemies, all those who have uh, slandered you, they will realize that God was with you and that they were in the wrong. And they'll be ashamed, but you'll be vindicated. And, and so here we have shame for God's enemies, but salvation, vindication, victory for God's people. And this, this theme that is described in, in this way by Isaiah in the Old Testament, I think it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, at that last day, the Son of Man is going to stand on the mountain. And all the peoples are going to be gathered to him. And he's going to separate them, right? He's going to divide them. He's going to have the sheep and the goats. He's going to have his people of salvation, but then the other people of judgment. Two sides of the same, of the same coin, the same event, same day, same moment, some receiving salvation, some receiving judgment. And those who are not Christ's people, they will go into everlasting torment. But those who are Christ's people into salvation and into the joy of their Lord. That's, I think, at least a a small picture of what Isaiah is looking forward to here in the judgment of the nations, but the salvation of God's people. And thinking about that theme is what drove the words of praise in the first part of the chapter, that God is faithful, that he will protect his people, and in protecting his people, he will bring salvation to them, but judgment to the enemies of God. And... This is, this is a, an incredibly powerful message to the people of Isaiah's day. Because for the Israelites in Isaiah's day, this reality that Isaiah is seeing seems so far off. It seems so far removed from reality. Because what's happening in Isaiah's day? Well, in the late 700s BC, they're being afflicted by Israel and Syria. They're being threatened by Assyria. Even just a little bit further down the road, they will be taken into captivity and defeated by Babylon. So on the near horizon for the people of Jerusalem and Judah, Isaiah's message seems so unrealistic. It seems so far off. But again, that's where faith comes in, doesn't it? That's where faith comes in, trust in God, and he is our salvation. From our perspective, living in 2018 in the United States of America, and we see the increasing animosity and hostility that is growing toward God, toward Christians in our country, and not only in our country, but in other places around the world, Uh, the, the, the beautiful grand vision of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven can seem unrealistic, but we need faith. We need that faith that God gives to his people and to have our eyes looking up, looking forward, not looking down here, but looking ahead. And that's what Isaiah is calling these people to, to not look at the nearsighted things that are here, but to look beyond to what God is going to do. And I think he's calling us to the same. Look at the ultimate salvation that God's going to bring for his people. It may not be tomorrow, could be, but it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next year. It might not even be in our lifetimes. There have been many Christians who have lived and died and did not see yet the new Jerusalem coming down. But one day they will. One day we will. And it's a promise that God has given to every one of his people. And in that, there's hope. 
and in that we live day by day, uh, trusting in what God is doing in the grand scheme of history, the things planned long ago, right? So he is a sovereign God, and we can trust him.